in this neighborhood. I feel like I'm in the old joke. Here's the obligatory opening joke about the city slicker who asks the farmer for directions on a country road, and the farmer says, oh, yeah, you make a left where the old red barn used to be. We are from the Lower East Side. We don't give a damn if we live or die. You're listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. Interference Archive is a social space, exhibition venue, and OpenStax archive of social movement materials. Our work is rooted in the belief that our shared history should be held in common and accessible to all. This week, several of us joined author, journalist, and activist Bill Weinberg for a walking tour of the Lower East Side. Later, we speak with Bill DePaula, who runs the Museum of Reclaimed Urban Space. A museum dedicated to documenting the history of New York City's squatters, community gardeners, and related activists. He tells us about the current state of the gardens and how the community gardeners have changed the city as we know it today. First, you'll hear a small segment of the tour in which Bill explains the early history of the gardens. Back then, the Lower East Side was what was considered a bad neighborhood, quote, unquote, a bad neighborhood being a euphemism for a neighborhood that white people should stay out of. And at that time, New York City was in deep crisis. The big post-war economic boom had come to an end with the energy crunch of the 1970s, and New York City's infrastructure was getting old and falling into disrepair, and there wasn't any money to fix it up. So the city turned to the federal government and asked for a bailout. And there was the famous headline in the Daily News, Ford to city, drop dead, when President Gerald Ford turned down the city's request for a bailout. So the city was forced to turn to the private sector, to the big banks and brokerage firms down on Wall Street, which formed an entity called the Municipal Assistance Corporation, the Big Mac, which did indeed make money available to the city, but it imposed certain conditions, the same kind of conditions when the International Monetary Fund imposes them on Mexico or Brazil, it's called austerity measures. Here in New York, it had a different name. It was called planned shrinkage, an intentional shrinkage of basic city services as a cost-saving measure. So under the program of planned shrinkage, the city government was obliged to start cutting back basic services, cutting back on housing code enforcement, most significantly, closing down schools, closing down hospitals, cutting back on sanitation pickup, and uh, most significantly, cutting back on the budget and the personnel for the fire department and actually closing down fire stations. And this was happening at the same time that these old tenement buildings were approaching a century old and falling into disrepair. And um, at this time, in addition to the capital flight from New York City, you also had the so-called white flight. White people of means were getting out of the urban core, moving out to the suburbs, moving out to Westchester, Long Island, New Jersey. And frequently the landlords decided that it was no longer worth their effort to maintain the buildings. And they would abandon the buildings and nobody would do any upkeep on the buildings. The buildings would deteriorate sometimes to the point of collapse and the tenants would have to move out, they'd be left to their own devices. Or sometimes what the landlords would do is they would pay some hoodlum to burn down their own building, pretend it was an accident, and cash in on the fire insurance. So there was a wave of landlord-sponsored arson which swept through the so-called bad neighborhoods of New York at that time. And recall, this is exactly at the same time that the city was closing down the fire stations in these so-called bad neighborhoods and cutting back on the budget and the personnel at the fire department generally. So basically what happened is that um, large sections of New York City were just left 
to burn in these years and were really just consumed by the flames. The part of the city that was hit the hardest was the South Bronx. In 1977, the same year this garden was created, newly elected President Jimmy Carter made his famous trip to the South Bronx, where he called it a national disgrace, which it was, and he said he was going to do something about it, which he really didn't. And at that time, the South Bronx looked like Berlin in 1945. It was block after block after block of burnt out, gutted building. It was a whole part of the city that had really been completely destroyed. Here in Manhattan, Harlem, and the Lower East Side were going in that direction. But something very interesting began to happen, with the Lower East Side out in front in the vanguard, where one fine day in 1977, uh, local residents who live on the block moved into what was uh, then a vacant lot and uh, began planting trees and flowers and turning it into a community garden. So if you had been at this spot 10 years before the garden was created, there probably would have been three or four tenement buildings on this site. Sometime over the course of the next 10 years, they all came down. So when the gardeners moved in here, this was a big field full of broken brick and plaster, a breeding ground for rats, junkies using it to shoot up, a dangerous, unsightly space. The gardeners came in and they um, chased off the junkies and they cleared out the rubble and they brought in soil and started planting trees and flowers and vegetable patches and started turning what had been an unsightly, dangerous, blighted, vacant lot into a pleasant community space where people could grow vegetables together and have cookouts and fiestas and picnics and get to know their neighbors and begin to restore a sense of community. Crazy thing about the garden still to this day, the city claims that they own it, the people claim they own it. So still to this day, it's kind of caught up in this weird area. It's called the community garden. It's run by the people. The people do all the work to maintain it. The people fix it up. The people plant stuff there. The people organize events. The city really does nothing except for provide insurance. And they have this program called Green Thumb, which they claim that Green Thumb owns all the gardens. If you talk to old school people like me, it's like, no way. We got arrested. We fought for these things. You threw them away. Giuliani wanted to destroy all the gardens. You have no right to these gardens. But new people come in. They don't really know the history. And they're like, yeah, I guess the city owns it. But who is the city? So we say the city is us again. So we think it's ours twice. We are the people who started the gardens. We are the people who maintain the gardens. I still work in the gardens. Then there's this idea, well, who is the city, right? Because let's just say the city does own the gardens. Isn't the city us again? Bill DePaula is one of the directors of the Museum of Reclaimed Urban Space. He has 30 years of organizing experience in New York City as the founder and director of the environmental organization Time's Up. The Museum of Reclaimed Urban Space strives to teach visitors about the radical social movements that have defined the Lower East Side since its earliest days as an immigrant neighborhood. The museum's collective tries to interrupt the narratives and policies that make gentrification seem like an inevitable process. So Giuliani wanted to destroy all the gardens, and he was doing it. And then uh, the people in this neighborhood and other neighborhoods did direct action in some of the gardens. The More Gardens Coalition and uh, Time's Up and a few other groups, they started physically locking down in the gardens to get attention because the city started to auction them off. And there was a big auction coming up. And in 2002, there was an action that happened a few blocks away. And we document that very well because... A really great thing about this museum is we tell the truth, whereas other people say, Bette Midler saved the gardens. They say that, and it's just like, what? Like, you know, that didn't happen. People got arrested. 
when you do a direct action, the reason why you're locking down is you're trying to get uh, to the courtroom because the only time you could save a building, a garden, or any space is by locking down and then going to the courtroom and getting what's called a temporary restraining order. You can only get a temporary restraining order in the process of the eviction, but you have to slow them down. So we were doing that in this garden. Over 100 people were in the garden when the police came, locking down, slowing them. We went to the courtroom. The court broke for lunch. The city destroyed the garden. The judge was so upset that they wouldn't wait for the decision the police that they granted a temporary restraining order over all the gardens. The next day or a few days later, that was written up by Elliot Spitzer, who was the attorney general, and that became the Spitzer Agreement. And people think, well, Elliot Spitzer saved the garden, but it was really this direct action. Today, there are hundreds of community gardens all across the city with varying legal statuses. Some are on parcels owned by nonprofits. Some are protected by the Parks Department, and some exist in legal limbo, much like the earliest gardens. So Bette Midler does have a group, Trust for Public Land. There's other groups that kind of came in and got a really good deal and bought a few gardens, and they're still cool. Then there's these gardens that the city claims that they're theirs, and those are connected under green thumb. We are disputing that and saying they're ours, but for now, everybody wants to put a green thumb sign on because... The biggest threat to the garden is the city. So it's kind of weird, right? Like the reason why all the gardeners want to put up a fence is to stop the city. So this new idea that the city is our friend is very difficult to accept for the squatters, for the gardens, for the community. So the city is now trying to change the narrative, right? All these weird sustainable things happened years ago. And the city didn't understand environmental stuff or on these they didn't understand sustainability. They didn't understand like trees are good for the air. So they were treating you like we were a criminal. But now if we march ahead to now, the city is changing. And the number one thing that tourists always say is I want to go to Times Square. Guess what the number two thing is now? They want to go to the High Line. They want to see greenways. They want to go in the pedicabs. They want to go in Central Park. So the tourists are loving this new sustainable thing that's happening. And this museum is kind of part of that, explaining how it happened. But the city is trying to corporatize it all to like say, wow, you know, whoa, we made a mistake with the gardens. We made a mistake with the bicycles. Can't believe we rested thousands of bicycles. You know, now we love the bicycling. So now they're changing their attitude towards that, which is cool, right? But don't change the history. And that's why the museum is here. We're trying to show how it started, who did it. And we're not trying to say the city is bad. We're just telling the truth. The museum isn't merely concerned with getting the history right. Bill explained that he sees protecting the gardens as a way to protect Americans' rights in the future, particularly the rights to free speech and assembly. Other cities, certainly outside of America, are trying to get rid of their green space because if they can get rid of their green space, they can stop people from public assembly, which they're nervous about. If you're an elected official, your biggest fear is someone doing a demonstration and being inside a city where people can mobilize. So if you get rid of the green space, they have no place to mobilize. You say, hey, you're not supposed to be on the street. You can't walk on the sidewalk. Hey, get out of here. You know, it's easier for them to control the streets. So what New York City did is they're trying to privatize these spaces. Then when someone applies for a permit, they can't assemble. In 2011, the rights to public assembly and access to urban space were among those issues that sparked Occupy Wall Street at Zuccotti Park renamed during the occupation as Liberty Plaza. At the museum, visitors can see one of the bikes developed by Time's Up that powered both the generators at Liberty Plaza and later provided electricity on Avenue C in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy. The bike is just one piece of the evolving activist history on display at the museum, 
It is a history of struggle fought in the Lower East Side that is, like the city itself, still contested. When people get upset, I kind of try to point out, look, we won. It's not the way we wanted it, but, like, Times Square is now auto-free. I mean, that was a huge victory to get chairs in the middle of Times Square. Like, I told that to the city years ago, and they said, you're crazy. There'll never be a chair in Times Square in the world. And I tried to explain to them how European cities, they have these places where people sit in the middle of the street. They're like, that ain't happening. Hey, people are coming to see this squat. People are loving the gardens. People are jumping into pedicabs. People are riding bikes in the city and understanding sustainable design. So in a way, we won, but some of the people who did win the battle didn't get treated too well and aren't around anymore. And I'm trying my best, or we're trying our best to try to represent how it happened. But you know, history does go with the rich people. A small fraction of the tour that we shared today hardly does justice to the real thing. We've posted pictures from the tour on our website. The Museum of Reclaimed Urban Space runs several tours each weekend. Check out their website, morusnyc.org, for more information. The music at the top of the show was Lower East Side by David Peel. You've been listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. The archive is collectively run and volunteer-powered. If you like what you heard today, consider making a donation to keep the archive up and running. Just go to interferencearchive.org and click on Donate. From all of us at Audio Interference, thanks for listening.